welcome to the European Football Show on the World Football Index. Um, as ever, I'm your host, Alan Feely, coming to you from Seville in the south of Spain. And I'm joined today by three fantastic guests in different parts of Europe. Uh, John O'Sullivan in Galway in the west of Ireland. How are you, John? I'm great, thanks. A rare, rare sunny weekend here in the extreme west of Ireland. So I think my brain is kind of overwhelmed with the vitamin D hit and everything is sunshine and lollipops. It's raining here in uh the south of Spain, so I think you might have stolen our sunshine from us. Uh, Jasmine, how are you in Hessen in Germany? I'm good, but it seems to be a never-ending cycle of Bundesliga news. Lots of work for you, so no sleep. Uh, Jonathan, how are you? How are things in the English capital, London? Yeah, good. It's pretty pretty sunny here, so um, not often that we can say we got better weather than Spain. So yeah, all good. <laughs> Thank you for uh, inviting me. No worries. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, another busy week of European football coming up. Uh, I'd like to start with the Champions League and Europa League fixtures. Do a bit of a mini kind of mini preview, you could say. Um, Paris Saint-Germain are playing Manchester City. A uh, very, very big game between two very, very wealthy clubs. Uh, one Super League club and one non-Super League club, as per last week's show. Um, although they're both not in the Super League anymore. Uh Jonathan, just to start with you about PSG, um, they had a good week. They beat Angers 5-0 in the French Cup and then followed up with a 3-1 win at Metz in Ligue 1. Um, what are your kind of feelings around PSG uh, going into this game? How confident are they of a victory, do you think? Yeah, I think they'll be really confident. Um, they're in pretty good pretty good form at the moment. Um, obviously, having knocked out Bayern Munich, I think that's a massive sort of uh, weight off their shoulders. I think it's psychologically going to be really important for them just beating you know the team that beat them in the final last season that kind of that feeling it's given them a feeling they can go all the way this time so they're not going to fear Manchester City I don't think in, in this game I think they'll be really relishing it and, and looking forward to it to be honest I think they're getting to that level now PSG where they they're sort of starting to feel like they belong at this stage you know they've knocked out big big clubs Barcelona as well so yeah I think there's a there's a general feeling that, that, that it's potentially there for the taking this time around so, um, you know, Neymar's coming back into, into fitness. Mbappe's in good form, although he picked up a bit of a knock, but I think he's fine. Uh, so, yeah, it's um, pretty exciting times. Kayla Navas just signed a new contract. Um, they're expecting, obviously, Neymar as well and Mbappe to potentially announce new deals in the coming weeks. So, although they're not top of the table in, in Liga, there's, you know, in terms of the Champions League, there's, there's really good feelings right now. And what do you think of the key kind of cogs of this new kind of Mauricio Pochettino-inspired PSG? What, what do you think is the kind of key changes that he made since taking over? Or is it just a case of Neymar really hitting a good run of form and Kylian Mbappe just kind of consistently performing at a really high level? Yeah, well, Neymar's not... Uh, sorry, Neymar's been out for quite a while. He, he's been injured and then he got suspended. He, he got a red card. So it's not necessarily uh, the two sort of heavyweights that uh, are kind of carrying the side by any means. He's really balanced the team a little bit. Um, he's made some tweaks in midfield. Players like you know Leandro Paredes has played a lot more, but uh, really there hasn't been the huge huge changes. I think what he's done quite well is is game management in the Champions League. Um, they certainly managed to sort of you know get the job done against Bayern and Barca and and um, in those games. I think in particular the, the the big players have stood up. I think there's a good feeling. I think he he gets on quite well with the players. I think Pochettino in general, even at Spurs, you know I think he's a he's a He's a player's kind of manager. You know, players respect him. I think they can kind of, um, what's the word I'm thinking, I'd sort of identify with him. They can, they can relate to him. You know, they, they get on quite well with him. Um, I don't know if anyone saw the scenes, but there was uh, after the, the Bayern, um, after they looked at Bayern, Neymar and Pochettino were sort of warmly embracing and, and, and Neymar certainly, you know, I think has that strong feeling with him. So, Poch- you know, Pochettino is quite good at that. He's quite good at relating with players. Um, there was an example, for example, when... Um, 
Angel Di Maria, his house was burgled and, and, you know, Pochettino sort of managed that quite well, handled it, you know, in a, in a kind of sort of very human way and, you know, was very empathetic. And, and um, I think he gets the fees emotionally quite in, in tune with his players. So I think from that point of view, that's been a, a boost for PSG. I think that's helped them kind of mould their squad. But let's not forget, they've, they've still had some quite poor results. They've lost to smaller teams like Lorient and others. So they, they have... Um, it hasn't been all one, you know, one-way traffic of, of happiness for uh, for Pochettino by any means. The league is still not done yet, and they've got four games left to sort of, you know, get the job done. And of, of course, if they don't win the league, that's a pretty big failure. Um, but I think the Champions League at this moment in time kind of is that distraction that allows Pochettino that extra time and, and sort of that extra credibility. So really, this is a big test for them because, of course, if they get knocked out, then it adds pressure to the league. So. Although they're in really good good spirits, it's it's obviously a key game. They want to get to the final, and, and I think they they can feel pretty confident potentially going all the way in this competition because Manchester City they're probably they're probably slightly ahead of Manchester City in terms of overall Champions League experience between the two of them. You know the, the sort of mega rich clubs. PSG are a little bit more advanced in their development. They've played in more semi finals, more fight. They're playing the final, obviously. So I think they're slightly advanced on on City, but obviously City are in fantastic form. So I, I think it's going to be a, a really good game. Absolutely. Jasmine, uh, Man City beat Villa 2-1 away from home during the week and followed up with obviously the 1-0 victory over Spurs in the League Cup final at Wembley on Sunday afternoon. Um, what do you make of this Man City team and the kind of moment they're in and how confident do you think they'll be going into this game with PSG? I think they'll be very confident. Um, I think they need to be confident just because of what has happened in the past under Pep Guardiola and being in the Champions League. But this is a kind of new steel Man City, especially that we've seen domestically. We've seen them a little bit on the back foot against Dortmund at times, which could be um, fatal if they do that against PSG, because as we all know, Neymar is coming back into form and Mbappe's been terrific. We saw what they can do against last year's holders and Bayern Munich. Um, but the tactics within the squad the Man City squad has just been impeccable. And, I mean, they've been unbeaten in in this whole competition. So um, it, it's not going to be... As long as they don't overthink and think about what has happened to past years, it should be a really good game. Um, I probably think it'll be too tight to tell in the first leg, though. Um, I don't think we can see any clear winner. And it's just a bit... I. I kind of compare uh, first legs to baseball pitches and following count. Um, normally baseball players bat once they have a favourable count in their favour and I think it's the same in this kind of two well-posed teams and we're probably not going to get like an inkling of what's going to happen until the second leg. Do you think that you know Guardiola could have a propensity to maybe overthink things once again when it comes to a big European game and maybe up for something radical? Or do you think that he's in a very kind of concentrated and kind of understated mode at the moment and that the team are almost like kind of a, a machine that runs itself in many ways and he's kind of just kind of keeping things going? What do you think, Jasmine? Definitely think the latter. It really should be the latter because I think that's where their best results have come from. And they'll be really encouraged that... They took on this um, Spurs side, which can surprise them. I think Spurs has been one of their more stickier teams in the last few years where they'll have, you know, a 3.0 XG and they'll lose 2-0 against Spurs. So I think the fact that they handled them 
so effortlessly and kept them quiet with, you know, one of the best strikers in the world. Um, I think that will really, really encourage them. So they don't need to overthink against PSG. If they play the same game plan like they have and just keep them quiet for the second leg, whether at home and probably relax just a little bit more, I think that will suit them perfectly. John, um, I don't know about you, but watching PSG this season, I've been kind of really enjoying watching, especially in the last leg, or the last round, sorry, uh, two lads, Kylian Mbappe and Neymar. Just watching them play football is such a joy. Neymar specifically, you know, the way he plays, he's really, when he's on song, is kind of really unlike anybody else in the world, you could say in many ways, the kind of childlike irreverence almost that he kind of takes to the game. Now, I know that there's a lot of negative rhetoric around the politics of the situation. And, you know, that's a very valid argument for sure. But is there a part of you that's just looking forward to the sheer spectacle that we're going to see between two very, very good football teams with two some, some very, very good footballers on the pitch? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, two things can be true at once. People can have justified reservations about the ownership of the respective clubs. But at the same time, as a pure spectacle, as a footballing contest, I think it, it should be excellent. I think PSG showed in the ties with Bayern Munich that they are very capable and adept at playing on the break. I mean, I remember a lot of screen grabs being taken from the Bayern first leg where it was almost a 4-4-2 shape where Mbappe and Neymar are indulged with the rest of the team and they're allowed to stay very forward while the rest of the team forms a solid block. And into that is included players like Angel Di Maria who are so often associated with their style and with their ability to use their technical prowess to good effects, but there they are working very hard for the shirt and for the cause. So I think that in that regard, Pochettino has, you know, a lot to be proud of in such a short space of time to get buy-in from players who, remember, aren't always necessarily the easiest or the most malleable to work with. Um, I think Tuchel didn't necessarily get on all that well with some members of that squad. Unai Emery, for example, didn't always command his respect over them as a group. So Pochettino deserves a lot of plaudits for doing that so early. So I think Manchester City, they haven't been quite as solid as that very, very good run of defence that underpinned, you know, the run that really took them from their start of the season inconsistencies to running away with the league title. I think maybe some of that has done with a bit of rotation in defence, like suspensions, for example, to John Stones and uh, America Laporte coming in. But I think they would be slight favourites for this, especially because Kevin De Bruyne is now available. There was talk that after he got injured in the FA Cup semi-final that he might be out for the rest of the season. Obviously, that was massively exaggerated. So I think he tilts the balance in their favour. But styles make fights. And in the Bayern legs, PSG showed how adept they can play on the counter-attack. And given the fact that Manchester City like to dominate possession and play a high line, then you're going to think there's going to be opportunities to break and who better in the world to dribble through pressure than Neymar and who better to latch on to through balls behind the high line than Mbappe so from that regard it should be a really fascinating fixture and I think of all the games in the Champions League semi-finals and indeed the Europa League this is the most interesting tie um, what do you make of the game against Spurs and more specifically what do you make of Jose Mourinho sacking we didn't get a chance to speak about it last week because of all the off the pitch stuff going on um, but for you John was it overly harsh to sack Jose the week before um, they compete in the League Cup final when he's won a trophy at every club he's been at in his career almost for a significant period of time at least was that harsh or was justified what do you think? It was perhaps a bit short-sighted but I wonder whether Daniel Levy comes to this decision after consulting with a lot of his players and if he thinks that Mourinho has lost the trust of his players then I mean it is understandable 
I don't think Spurs played any differently in this League Cup final under Ryan Mason's guidance than what they would have played with under Jose Mourinho. They were quite defensively obstinate. They sat deep and they looked to contain Manchester City and, you know, sporadically play on the counter-attack. The game finished 1-0, but like a more accurate reflection would have been 2 or 3-0. I think Spurs were second best in every department. Um, the conspiratorial man inside of me would have thought that when Mourinho was sacked by Spurs, given his contractual situation, how expensive it would have been to have parted ways with him, that it might have been a confirmation that the Super League was going to happen. So I wonder if that had any kind of bearing on the decision and now whether Daniel Levy will look like he'll have egg on his face at the end of the day. But uh, Manchester City were thoroughly deserved winners. They matched Liverpool's record for four consecutive League Cup wins. Fernandinho has four, has six League Cup medals in his back pocket, which is just just ast- astounding. And it shows the depth of Man City squad. It's a tournament that's really marked by teams rotating heavily. And it's just an indicator of how good their squad is, that their second team is far better than everyone else's second team. And I would even go as far as to say that their second team, in inverted commas, is better than most teams' uh, first teams. So, yeah, they, they they thoroughly deserve the win. And it will probably be a nice fill-up for them heading into Europe. And, you know, they'll confirm their Premier League title soon. And they'll probably end up completing a travel. Or, so they'll be favourites too, anyway. On the other side of Manchester, uh, United are playing Roma in the Europa League semi-final this week. Uh, first leg in Old Trafford. Uh, they drew nil all with Leeds United this week in the Premier League. Uh, Jonathan, what are your thoughts on this uh, United kind of team going into these games? Uh, are you confident that they can get something? Um, would winning the Europa League and finishing seconds in the Premier League be a, a good season for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? Um, and what do you think of the kind of general vibe around the club at the moment, given the fallout from uh, the Super League fiasco? Ding dong, the Woodward's gone. I think that's the... Uh... That's my current feeling. So, um, yeah, I think uh, you've got two questions there. What's the mood around the club? Uh, you can divide that in between club itself and obviously fans. Um, the mood around the fans, I think, is delighted at the fact that Edward Wood has left. Eight years or even more years than that, I think, uh, since he was promoted and, and uh, his track record, I don't think, will go down history as being looked upon too fondly. I think um, he was described as a snake by Seferin and... There's sort of reports this week that he maybe came across an even bigger snake in terms of Boris Johnson, who obviously uh, he met at Downing Street. And, uh, you know, it was a, maybe the first time he's, he's uh, found someone who was more duplicitous than him because um, he uh, he obviously gave him the nod for the Super League, according to reports, and then, and then sort of t- changed his mind. So, uh, you know, that, that whole saga has filled me with much laughter, I have to say, um, purely because obviously of just the way that, the, the 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 hierarchy at Manchester United has dealt with fans in the past sort of fifteen years, fourteen years since the Glazers takeover, um, just complete disrespect. So I think that's the why fans generally feel, you know, quite quite happy about that situation. In terms of the uh, the team itself, I think I think uh, winning the Europa League would be would and the coming second would be a good season. It would be. Um, I've got my own personal feelings in terms of the, the style of the play, and I think John, I, I saw you on mention on Twitter. Um, something about how United kind of just get the job done, and it's not necessarily you know hugely entertaining football. I, I would agree with that. I think that um, that's probably my theme of the season. United tend to sort of just you can almost avoid watching the games because you know United are going to be not great. Um, maybe go a goal down, but we'll, but win the game. And um, it's been a sort of strange season from that point of view. Um, in a way encouraging, but in a way maybe not encouraging if you look at the sort of underlying numbers and metrics. But ultimately, you know, the points is, is what matters. 
you can debate whether it's because of the dip in other teams' ability that has allowed Manchester United to be so well placed to finish second or if it's an improvement in their own right. I think it's a bit of both. I think the team has improved and, and is looking good, but can it really get the job done? I think we'll find a lot of answers in this next couple of games in the Europa League and potentially if they get to the final, then the final, because that's been the main problem. Obviously, five semi-finals under, under Solskjaer, all defeats. And, um, you know, it's, it's about getting over that hurdle now and proving that you can win when it actually matters in, in these big games and not just games where it's not much riding on it. So I really think that the Europa League is a huge indicator for next season, potentially. And, um, you know, if the team can win the Europa League, I think, I think it will go down as a success. I think what would not go down as a success is if United finished second and then were to somehow lose to Arsenal in the Europa League final, that would be nothing but a disaster. So, um, you know, I think I think there is importance in this Europa League, even if perhaps Solskjaer himself might not really see much relevance apart from winning a trophy. So, uh, yeah, there, there's, there is some rope left in the season, if that makes sense. There's still things to play for, even if the Leeds game at the weekend was obviously, uh, you know, I think Jamie Carragher described it as <laughs> boring, which was <laughs> a frank admission for a Sky pundit. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think... Although that, although the league itself, there's not much riding on it now. Really, that second looks about to be about sure. Um, I, I do think this Europa League semi-final and, and potentially final has a, a lot of um, importance in how fans perceive the season. Well, I mean, Roma drew one all with Atlanta in Serie A last weekend, or during the week, sorry, and then lost three two to Cagliari um, at the weekend. Like, if United don't get past Roma over two legs, and then possibly don't beat either Villarreal or Arsenal in the final, like. That would be a seriously negative end to the season for United and for Solskjaer, wouldn't it? Because as you mentioned, they've made good progress in the games that don't really matter a huge deal, but their bad record is in the semifinals and the finals, the kind of crunch games. Like, how bad would it be if they didn't win the Europa League? Because they're really the outright favourites now, aren't they, Jonathan? Yeah, I don't think it would be bad. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've seen some sort of analysis of the Leeds game and I thought it was some some comments were a bit far-fetched, a bit, bit over the top, sorry. Um, I think it was Paul Lintz and Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank who, who were pundits in the TV game, and, and and I thought they were they were kind of quite critical of United, which I I, I think you know second place is pretty much done, and, and you have to look at other teams in sort of tenth and and sixth and seventh, and and sort of say, you know, it's been an okay season in the league uh, from United. I don't think anyone would probably thought they would have finished the top two if you if you if you look at the start of the season probably. So from that point of view, I don't think it's too bad. But I, th- I think you're right there, Alan. I think that the Europa League does have quite quite a lot of importance. In a strange way, I kind of think it'll be, I think it'll be less criticised if United lose in the semis than if they lost in the final to Arsenal. I mean, I'm not, obviously there's no divine right to say Arsenal are in the final. They've, they've still got Villarreal. But I kind of feel like ending the season in that way would just be banter central. <laughs> on social media, <laughs> the long-standing rivalry between the two clubs—it would just be to 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 let Arsenal in the Champions League through the back door would be catastrophic from a fan point of view. So I, I just think that like kind of almost losing to Roma in the semis would be probably looked upon better than losing in the final. So, um, but then obviously winning the final and denying denying you know Arsenal a place in the Champions League would be would be quite quite delightful. So um, it's a, it's a sort of a knife edge, but you know I, I do think you're right, and I think United need to show that they can get past semi-finals because let's let's not talk about finals when they haven't even got to one. So from that point of view, I do think it's quite important for United to show that they can get these big games done. And I've noticed there's a lot of players who have sort of um, come through the team this season, and, and I've noticed a shift in mentality from United, and I think that's been led by Bruno Fernandes, for example, who I can't praise enough in terms of his winning mentality and his 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 desire. Uh, to actually win things, and I think he's changed the whole mentality of the dressing room. I think he's, I think he almost single-handedly has changed United from 
a team that was quite happy to just be drifting along. And, you know, you'd, you'd see post-match interviews, players would come out and be like, well, you know, we'll see what we can do. And, and they'd post a nice caption on Twitter, you know, better luck next time sort of stuff. Um, but this season, I've seen a real shift in the mentality, the mindset. Players like Harry Maguire, even Luke Shaw have, have been a lot more frustrated at, say, get, getting a point after matches, if that makes sense, in post-match interviews and things like that. There's a lot more determination. Um, I think that's driven by Bruno. So I think from the player's point of view, they'll be desperate to, to win a trophy. Um, I don't think the club necessarily, there's really any real financial imperative. I think that, you know, I, I think it's one of the criticisms of United, the club the club itself isn't that bo- doesn't seem that bothered about these sort of things, if that makes sense. Um, they're in a Champions League and from that financial point of view, it's almost like job done. But, you know, you, you want you want some drive to actually win a trophy. And I think it's really important United start to, to start to win things now on the Solskjaer to take that next step. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if I've sort of rambled a bit here, but but I suppose what I'm trying to say is it is it, I think it is really important, but I do think that there's sort of different people have different interests within the club in terms of how important this is, if that makes sense. I think the players really want to do it. I think the managers kind of maybe wants it, but wouldn't be too bothered if he, if he, if he didn't win it because Champions League secured. And I think from the club's point of view, from the Glazers' point of view, they're probably thinking, well, you know, Champions League is Champions League, so, you know, who cares? So, um, yeah, we'll see. You mentioned that it'd be bad to lose to Arsenal in the final. Um, Jasmine, I think it'd be really bad if Arsenal lost to Unai Emery's Villarreal in the semi-final. I think it definitely would be bad for you, uh, <laughs> given your long-standing relationship with Unai Emery. Um, but, like, what's the Arsenal perspective? I mean, they lost 1-0 to the magnificent uh, Everton on Friday evening. Thanks to a, a wonderful goal from Richardson with a little bit of help from Bern Leno. Um, like, <laughs> what's your kind of thought process? I mean, like, this really isn't turning out to be a good season for Arsenal, is it? I mean, I know there's a lot of off the stuff, off the field stuff happening now um, with uh, the ownership and the potential Spotify with you know some old players involved, uh, aided takeover. Um, but like, how important is the Europa League for Arsenal now? It really is kind of almost all or nothing, isn't it? To borrow the Amazon Prime generic title, <laughs> you have to be careful they don't copyright for you saying that. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I think we won in a spectacular good place before losing to Everton. But you know, if you someone said to me, "Oh, we'd only be what eight points behind." the defending champions last season, I would have bit your hand off in a way. Like, this season really can't be taken seriously. The gap, the lack of a gap between the top 10 teams is, well, 11 teams, Aston Villa as well, um, is crazy. Um, So I can't really take the league seriously. If we didn't end up in Europe next season, it'd probably benefit Arsenal for a year. Um, just because of everything that's happened, everything that's continuing to happen with ownership and arguments and protests, um, it's no uh, it's, n- it's no surprise that people are taking after the whole Super League fiasco. They want Stan Kroenke out more than ever. Um, he has never put any money into the club. He has only taken out of the club. Um, and it's mismanaged all over the place. And, and it's just, I fear for this Europa League match because, I mean, I can hate on Unai Emery all I want. I can despise his tactics, but 
for some for some odd reason that is unknown to the laws of science, he absolutely loves the Europa League. So we're up to with a Europa League elite manager who probably will knock us out. I know Jonathan was saying about we have to be Arsenal in the final. I don't see Arsenal in the final against this absolutely jammy Europe, Europa League winning manager. Um, I mean, we can be good in Europe and we'll have uh, Odegaard back in more fitness. I'm not sure what, if Aubameyang's going to train after he's recovering from malaria. And then even though we were, the game against Everton was very poor, but, you know, that should have been nil-nil. And yet again, it was a bad mistake that completely got caught us off track. That's something that Emery teams love they love the errors. That's what they're good at. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if we get knocked out, especially how turgid the team is. We don't really have a left back. I mean, we play Granite Jacket left back at the moment, which can work. Um, but if you put something, someone like Martinelli or even Saka on the left, the problem is that you've got two two players on the left that come in quite narrow and you don't get any wide kind of structure that you would get from Kieran Tierney or if you play Pepe on the left. Unfortunately, Pepe is so kind of easily stifled in the league. Maybe him playing on the left against Villarreal might work. But yeah, um, if Arsenal want any chance of qualifying for the Champions League um, I don't know if it would be any good for them uh, they need to win this game and they need to win the final as well big games coming up for sure just for the moment of the week I can say mine now it's Ben Godfrey riling up Arsenal players by celebrating at the final whistle loudly and aggressively that was definitely my moment of the week <laughs> um, Sam Leverage is joining us from Madrid how are you Sam? Hi I'm all good sorry I'm late no worries, no worries. How are things in the capital? Good, yeah. Very using my Spanish timekeeping because we've got very anti-Spanish weather pouring down with the rain all weekend. Which I know you in Seville with the rain must be a weird sensation, but here in Madrid we're not used to it either. It just seems to be when Real Madrid play at home that the sky is open. <laughs> yeah, John, John's stolen my weather from Seville. He's taken it to Connemara for some reason. Don't know why. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, Sam, just basically just asking about Villarreal. Um, they lost 2-1 to Alaves. Shocking result for Villarreal. Great result for Alaves. Could potentially help them uh, stay up in La Liga this season. And then followed up with a 2-1 defeat against Barcelona at the weekend. Uh, Antoine Griezmann, brace, uh, overcoming uh, Samuel Chikawesi's opening goal. Um, what do you think about this Villarreal team and how confident do you think they'll be going into this game? I mean, their, their record in Europe this season is practically flawless. They've been superb in the Europa League. Obviously, Unai Emery is, as Jasmine alluded to, uh, an absolute expert in this competition. Uh, their, their domestic form isn't spectacular, however, and they're kind of maybe flagging a bit. Do you think that's just a matter of them putting everything into the Europa League, both mentally and spiritually and physically? Or do you think that they could come on stock against Arsenal? I think in many ways they are the Arsenal of La Liga in how they play. And I think you're right that the league form hasn't been great, but they're a team that really blows hot and cold. I mean, against Barcelona at the weekend, for large parts of the second half, even with 10 men, they were the better team. So it's hard to kind of judge them by results alone, but they have been struggling to pick up points. And 
and in the Europa League, they've just had that extra edge where they've been able to to make the difference. And Gerard Moreno, for me, is one of the best strikers, the best centre forwards in in Europe. So I think with him in the side, they can count on that a bit more. He's in great form this year in 2021. I think there's been something like three or four games that he hasn't scored or assisted a goal in. And up against Arsenal's defence, I think he'll be optimistic of, of keeping that run going. But I think with Villarreal, they're a team who have the potential to either be really good or to be very average. Um, Unai Emery has always kind of had that reputation that he either gets it spot on and teams are blown away or he gets it totally wrong. I think we've seen that against Barcelona earlier on in the season. Villarreal went to Camp Nou and they got blown away by Barcelona. Emery got it totally wrong. This weekend, they took the lead. Uh, Barcelona pulled one back, eventually went one, one ahead and and then Villarreal were dominating completely. They looked more likely to get an equaliser, but the red card kind of made it, there was game over. But Villarreal stayed in the game. So I think it'll be interesting to see how fit they are after the weekend because they were really intense football that they were playing with 10 men up against Barcelona. So it'll be interesting to see how many players that ended that game are starting against Arsenal, how many uh, are still up for it later on in the tie. But they're a side that have the potential to to play anyone off the park. I think they could give Man United a good game. I think they could give Arsenal a good game. I think they could give Roma a good game. It's just whether they turn up. With Unai Emery in the Europa League, like Jasmine said, I think it's just one of those tournaments where he has something special that means that Unai Emery's tricks always work in the Europa League and, and he'll be getting the most out of them. Even Alberto Moreno at left back, if he does start, I'm sure he'll find a way to make him defend properly and, and not cost Liverpool like they did when he was there. Yeah, of course, they're in a direct battle for the Europa League for next season with Real Betis and uh, Real Sociedad. Um, but yeah, definitely going to be interesting how they do. Uh, like to see Pau Torres step up in the bigger games and show what he's made of, really, because he's a very exciting young centre-back, as well as uh, Jeremy Moreno, of course, uh, up front. Yeah, and that's uh, the thing with Villarreal. They've got such good players in their spine. Kind of Pau Torres at centre-back is brilliant. Dani Parejo in midfield, again, one of the best midfielders in Spain, and Gerard Moreno in tack. Even in goal, Sergio Senjo is a, a top quality keeper. So to have that spine is is really at the heart of Villarreal. It's kind of the players around them that need to, to step up. And when they do, then they're a fantastic team. And also the foil as well, because Pau Torres has Raul Albiol next to him. Uh, Paco Alcacer is being played off of by Jared Moreno. Do you think that Jared Moreno could start for Spain in the European Championships this summer? Um, do you think that he's... I mean, obviously, he's a very different player to Alvaro Morata. He's more of a kind of a second striker, you could say, more kind of a, a playmaker than a you know poacher. But do you think that he could start up front by himself? I think he could. I don't think he will. I think Luis Enrique will go with Alvaro Morata. He definitely prefers that kind of target man, almost like Luis Suarez back when Luis Enrique was at Barcelona, kind of the man who's going to be in and around the box and getting on the end of things. Gerard Moreno likes to play a bit deeper. I think that kind of costs him with the Spain team. That There's no natural role for him to fit into Luis Enrique's side. Maybe there's a role for him on the right, coming in, cutting inside. Maybe that's a role that he can kind of adapt to, being a bit wider, a bit deeper than he usually is. And, and he could start games there. But I think he's a great goal scorer and definitely he's one that Luis Enrique in qualifiers in friendlies look to use him coming off the bench and, and making an impact and playing that kind of poacher role, which isn't his natural role. Yeah, his, fo- his form this season, I think he deserves the shot. Maybe instead of Danny Olmo or something on the wider position, maybe him, Morata and uh, Ferran Torres in the front three. But uh, Yeah, I think there's wide positions for Spain. Uh, 
are totally up in the air. I mean, Mikolayov about started the season very well, faded off a bit. Anzu Fati would be a dead cert, but struggling with injury. So I think Ferran Torres has kind of made one of those attacking spots his own. And then there's kind of one up for grabs. So whether Moreno could try and get in there and get in on the right, then it'd be interesting to see what, what Luis Enrique does in the weeks up to the Euros. Uh, John, what are your thoughts on these Europa League games? Who do you see going through in each uh, leg? Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think Man United will be the favourites for it. They have the deepest squad. They have the most expensively assembled squad. And they have a lot of game winners. It's like Jonathan mentioned earlier, like they rarely convince you. They invariably win games by maybe a one or two goal margin, apart from that 9-0 glut against Southampton. But you're rarely left blown away by them. But they just do have, they have enough quality. And I think one thing where they need to, be complimented as well is the fact that they've had so few injuries this season despite it being the most condensed season of all time and also despite the fact that Solskjaer rarely seems to rotate all that much so I don't know how they've managed to keep their squad in one piece so to speak for the duration of this campaign so I would say they're the favourites for it but in in saying that Roma will threaten them because I think Roma while they don't have a lot of pace they have a lot of technical prowess in their in their kind of attacking line. So you have the likes of Pedro and Henrik Mkhitaryan and Edin Dzeko, all, all three of whom actually are very two-footed. And when you look at the wide players, whether it's Pedro or Mkhitaryan, they're very comfortable with going inside or outside. And uh, I think Aaron Wan-Bissaka has had like trouble dealing with players like that in, in a lot of instances. Like He's a very good 1v1 defender, and if you try and beat him in a foot race, he's going to win. But he seems to have kind of like a blind spot when players have cute movement around him. And he seems very susceptible to not being able to deal with crosses as they come from the other side of the pitch. So that could be an avenue that Roma look to exploit, I think. But uh, I think United will probably be the favourites for this. As for Villarreal Arsenal, it's hard to call whatever black magic voodoo that uh, Unai Emery uses in the Europa League is a very potent and heady mixture. And it's worked spectacularly for him in the past. And Arsenal uh, aren't in the best moment. They have issues at left-back. So I would say they would be marginal favourites, but I'm not going to stand here and say I would be absolutely surprised if Arsenal, just given some of the attacking players they have and the likes of Neil Smith-Rowe kind of feeding them, I wouldn't be blown away or surprised if Arsenal were to Arsenal were to come through. And I'd actually, I quite like them to do it and to go on to win it just because of uh, what the stance that Alexander Lacazette took uh, away to Slavia Prague, which I thought was absolutely, absolutely brilliant. So I think Villarreal are probably just slight favourites for this. And I think there is more pressure on Arsenal to win because it's uh, it's their only route into Champions League football. But it's going to be very hard to call. Um, I think United are overall favourites, but... Yeah, any kind of configuration of the final wouldn't surprise me in this context whatsoever. Jonathan, um, Real Madrid are playing Chelsea in the first leg of the other Champions League semi-final. Uh, first game is in the Spanish capital of Valdebebas. Uh, are the training ground, as Jurgen Klopp put it. And it didn't go down too well in Madrid. But anyway, uh, Jonathan, what do you think of this game and who do you think are the favourites? Alan, I love the way you are sort of just... Witheringly say training ground there. I can, I can feel the Everton fan of you coming uh, <laughs> out with that comment. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting. I think there's going to be some backstories in this match. Um, I don't know if anyone likes WWE, but I've almost got this image in my mind of sort of Real Madrid winning the trophy and sort of taking it with them to the Super League in some sort of like Shawn Michaels, Brett the Hitman Hart kind of, you know, Montreal screw job of a football type thing going on. Um, 
But uh, yeah, that might be a bit of a niche reference if you don't have a um, <laughs> um, you know, like 90s wrestling, basically. But yeah, um, it's a, it's, there is a very weird backstory to this because if you look at Real Madrid's point of view, you know, if you if you followed it, Perez, Florentino Perez, obviously the president has been pretty much on on, on radio every night. Um, you know, kind of taking pot shots at, at Seferin, the, the president of, of UEFA, and um, you know, sort of this this whole Super League thing is still going on in the background. You know, this idea that Real Madrid would take their trophies with them to this new league, and um, I think there's a lot, there's a bit of, there's going to be quite a bit of bad blood between the respective presidents. I think for for quite a while. Um, I don't know if you saw Alan or maybe Sam as well, based in Spain, but Sheffarin out was trending in Spain, and there's sort of rumours that maybe Perez used some of his his media contacts to kind of in, you know instigate that. So there is going to be a sort of weird standoff between Real Madrid and and um, and UEFA, and of course UEFA is still potentially planning sanctions for for the clubs that um, remain in the Super League. So you know there's still the potential prospect that maybe even you know Real Madrid. Uh, kicked out of the Champions League or something like that. We don't know what the potential punishments could be. It doesn't seem like Perez is going to back down. Um, so that's a really interesting backstory to it. You know, I've almost got an image in my mind of, I don't know, like Real Madrid booing the anthem or something, you know, kind of um, when the Champions League anthem comes along. So it's, it's going to be interesting from that point of view. Um, and on that point, Jonathan, sorry to interrupt, just to go on to that point, one thing that I've seen in the press conferences with Tuchel and with Zidane, Varane and everything, is the Madrid media going very heavy on the, are you worried about the refereeing? Do you think the referees are going to be biased against you because of pressure from UEFA? And you can already see it coming, that there's going to be something that happens in the game, some flashpoint, and the media, who are leaning a certain way, could go on. Well, even I I was listening to El Partidazo de Cope this morning, and they were talking about the referees in a serious way. Like they were really saying, you know, the referees are basically going to be biased against Madrid. Is this a real problem that they're going to face? And like El Partidazo are not El Chiringuito. They're quite a respected outlet. Like, I mean, it's a real, real current of thought in Madrid that, you know, it's kind of them against the world going to this game. Yeah, it's almost very Jose Mourinho-esque that everybody's against us, which has kind of stuck with Madrid a bit since Mourinho was around. And they've kind of still got this feeling. And at first, when I saw the question asked of Iran, I thought it was a joke. And then I saw people, like like you say, Alan, with the Partidazo and another serious media outlet saying, like, no, there's real pressure from UEFA on these referees to give things against Real Madrid. You think nobody else in Europe will believe you, but... In Madrid, in Spain, people will buy into that and think that if there's a red card for a dodgy tackle or a penalty that maybe was dubious, that's going to be taking up all the headlines in the Madrid press, at least. Sorry, Jonathan, go on, continue. Yeah, no, thanks, Sam. It's a great, great point. Good to get your insight from Spain as well on the ground. So it kind of backs up um, my feeling there. I think, um, you know, I think it will, I think they definitely will play a role. I think I think there is a long, like I say, story to come on this. It is basically kind of a what's the word? I can sort of a, there will be a media battle, a sort of a, a war, a sort of trench warfare between UEFA and Real Madrid going forward. Because I, I don't think Real Madrid will back down from the Super League. Barcelona have already said they're going to back Real Madrid. Um, they have to because financial, you know, pre- um, financial indicators just make it. They have they have to do that. So. I think they're gonna, you know, I think this will run for quite a while in terms of Spain versus UEFA. So, the you know, just probably having Madrid out of it would probably suit Seferin to a certain extent in a way because it's just something they don't have to worry about too much. I'm not saying that that's going to impinge on 
the integrity of the competition at all, but I'm just saying that that is a kind of interesting backstory. Perez will, will try and manipulate their involvement in the Champions League for the rest of the season to his own benefit, I'm sure. So, um, <clears throat> and use any tools he can to kind of turn the turn the tide in his, in his favour, in his club's favour and, and this sort of Super League's favour. So that will be very interesting. I think if we go back to obviously matters on the field, um, from my point of view, I think, I think Thomas Tuchel has been an unbelievable appointment from Chelsea. I think... I think it's been a game changer. I, I look at them next season as potential title contenders, like strong title contenders. Um, I, I really, really like him. Uh, I, I did a sort of thread on Twitter, I think, at the time when, when they knocked Manchester United out, well, more or less, um, when they beat Manchester United or Trafford in the Champions League group stages. And I really feel Tuchel is tactically really, really sort of on it. Um, I think he's one of the top managers. Um, so I, th- I think Chelsea might go into it as slight favourites. Um, I think that Chelsea have got a good squad. I think he's managed well. Maybe defensively could be could be an issue. Obviously with Benzema, you know, um, still doing his thing. I thought against Liverpool, um, Real Madrid looked quite good. But I, I almost lamented kind of um, the death of the sort of like skillful Brazilian. I, th- I thought I thought Rodrigo and Vinicius Junior were very functional, um, and that sort of had me yearning for the days of you know like the. I know Danielsons of this world doing million stepovers and stuff like that. You know, I, I kind of uh, they seemed like very functional tactical players, which was a bit of a surprise. Obviously, they were. Um, I think in Rodrigo's case, bought on for counter attacking and that kind of thing. Um, but you know, Zidane's been there, done that. He's a, he's he's you know he's a master at this level of Champions League. So um, I think it's going to be a really really interesting game. I probably have Chelsea as slight favourites, but you, you can never write for Real Madrid, can you? In in this stage of the competition. You just on the Brazilians' point. Um, I think the reason they're like that is because they're actually fighting for their places. I mean, like Hazard came back on against Betis on uh, Saturday evening and played quite well for 15 minutes or so. And uh, Zidane actually shifted Vinicius out of his preferred position to accommodate Hazard and kind of made it clear that Hazard will always get the position he wants because he's the key piece of that attack. And their ideal world is for the front three to be Hazard, um, Benzema and Kylian Mbappe. Uh, so I think the two Brazilian boys, Evinicius and Rodrigo, are very, very talented lads, but I think they're very much kind of scrapping to get even a starting role, to be honest with you, which is kind of a strange one. But, if I could just add to that uh, very quickly, and yeah. I've got a tangent and I'll be very quick, but uh, it does make me kind of wonder about the... I mean, I know there's... I don't want to get too deep into these kind of questions, but it just made me wonder about kind of the... <clears throat> what is? I mean, I'm not saying... I haven't seen huge amounts of them, I'll be honest, but... Um, as I say, they seem very functional doing a job kind of thing. And, and it did make me think about the benefits of them moving so quickly, so young to 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 Spain and to such a massive club as well in Real Madrid and the pressures they must face. Um, I'm sure you guys have all seen Ka- uh, Kaiki, who's just moved to Manchester City as well. Um, I think he's 17 or 16, 17-ish. Uh, and it just made me sort of think about just, just this rapid... I know we're in this sort of existential world at the moment, thinking about the Super League and the, the state of football. It just made me a little bit lament for this sort of way that players in Brazil just immediately like barely made a first team debut and they're already sort of gone to a major club and it just made me although it's probably the natural evolution of football it just just made me sort of um, a little bit mournful of that time when players from Brazil had that 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 time to actually you know grow into them their own careers and establish their own kind of uh, histories if that makes sense before they get snapped up um, and obviously probably the most recent the most sort of um, recent example of that in terms of being allowed to stay in Brazil was Neymar isn't it he didn't move to uh, from Santos till I think he was sort of twenty one ish or so, which was and played quite a few seasons in um in Santos's first team, obviously, which which is almost seems impossible now, doesn't it, for for Brazilian young talents. So yeah, just a side note there, but I thought it'd be food for thought, maybe anyone listening. 
and crucially won the Copa Libertadores as well. Like he's a genuine legend at Santos now. He's up there with, with Pele in many ways in terms of uh, idols of the club. Um, but yeah, I guess this kind of financial, stru- financial structure of the Brazilian game at the moment isn't really allowing them to have that moment with their players, which is a shame because that affects them when they go to the national team because they don't have the same uh, kind of communication that you know the likes of Neymar would have had with the, the fans who follow the game in Brazil. They're very much kind of almost like, a bit like Lionel Messi, and Argentina in terms of you go so young, you don't have time to build that rapport domestically. But uh, yeah, certainly very interesting. Maybe a, a podcast special, Jonathan, that we could do at some point. Uh, but just Jasmine, uh, from Thomas Tusser's perspective, I know you're a huge fan of his. Um, this is really where he kind of uh, earns his bread and butter, isn't it? Like these kind of games, these kind of games where you need your tactical uh, news to kind of, you know, come up against some very, very talented opposition. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a massive point. I can't pick a favourite. Um, but if you would ask me before Real Madrid faced Liverpool, I was saying that Chelsea was probably third favourite after Bayern Munich, Man City, okay, fourth, if you include PSG as well. Um, so I, it really is down to the tactics. I think tactically... He can take on Real Madrid. Um, personnel, maybe when he hasn't got the right enough experience or um, talent that he would have liked, um, especially what he had at PSG. I mean, it's going to be hard to emulate what he had at PSG. He had Neymar and Mbappe, uh, amongst others. Um, so I do think the kind of experience of Real Madrid is going to be that thing that might be the deal breaker um but yeah I think he's worked well especially with the back three um tactic that he uses it'll be interesting to see what he does up top um he's had Kai Havertz lead the line and I think that's been the most clinical that we've seen under Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea Werner looked uh, rejuvenated on the weekend so Maybe he'll stick with him. I mean, the thing is with Timo Werner is like he gets into the spaces you want your strikers to get, but he's sometimes not as comfortable or confident with those easier chances. Um, he really needs to run behind the defensive line, and I don't know if he'll get as many chances to do that against this Real Madrid side. But, I mean, if, if Chelsea have every chance, um, I probably wouldn't have them favourites just because of Real Madrid's pedigree now. Um, if they didn't have such a viewing against Liverpool, I probably would have put Chelsea favourites. John, how do you see this game? I think it's going to be very, very tight. Two teams who don't necessarily score a lot, but to counterbalance that, they're both very, very defensively solid. Real Madrid have the nous and the muscle memory in the stages of the competition, but you know Chelsea have been so impressive, barring that you know, kind of anomalous defeat to West Bromwich Albion, which was really came to pass because of a red card, Thiago Silva. They've been very impressive since he's took over. He seems to have rejuvenated them and they seem to have fit seamlessly into his uh, back three system. And I think they'll take a lot of stock from the fact that they beat Manchester City and deservedly so in the FA Cup semi-final and they'll apply that to the Real Madrid game. But what Madrid showed as well against Liverpool is how amorphous they are and how tactically flexible they were. Like for for times against Liverpool, they pressed really high. For other times, they kind of sat off and were more compact. 
they nearly kind of change shape in game. Sometimes it's almost like they had a back three. So Zidane is so so flexible, and like I mentioned before, you can you can clearly tell that he's been worked under Carlo Ancelotti as a coach in the kind of formative years of his coaching life. So I think that Real Madrid will probably be slight favorites, but this will be like one of those early to mid two thousands Champions League semifinals. It'll be it'll be a razor thin margin between both teams come uh, come the final tossings up. It'll probably be a one or two goal differential in the end. Uh, if you put a gun to my head, I would probably say that Real Madrid will just have too much experience and know how for Chelsea. But you know, when your defense is so good, you have a you have a chance to stay in any tie, which is I think crucial to say, not just game tie. So it would be hard to write off Chelsea. So especially given how deep their squad is and how they can, you know, they can take some players in and some players out, and they never really seem to veer too much off the consistent level that they've reached. But uh, all that being said, I think that Real Madrid, especially with Hazard giving him a new option now that he's back and fit, and now that he has the kind of carrot to try and, you know, really put himself into the best moment he can be in before the Euros with Belgium, I think he could be I think he could be a real danger for Chelsea. Madrid beat Kiddes 3 0 um during the week at not the ungodly hour of ten o'clock. Um people in Spain didn't want to sleep this week, it seems Sam. Uh, and then followed up with a kind of disappointing nil draw with Real Betis at Valdebebas on Saturday night. Uh, like I, the feeling for me, Sam, is that you know if the previous uh, Champions League wins that Zidane led Madrid to were kind of terms for Cristiano, you could say, and the, and the stars of Madrid, if they win it this time, it would really be Zidane's victory. Do you know? Like, what what did you make of this week for Madrid? I mean, obviously off the pitch, it was a madness, but. On the pitch, how do you see them for this game? Yeah, I think looking at the tie against Liverpool in particular, it just shows the the importance of the team. Uh, seeing Nacho and Militao come in and probably be the best players on the pitch for Real Madrid, and that's something that that just hasn't happened at Real Madrid. It's always been about the superstars. It's always been about the Cristiano Ronaldo or the Bale substitute in the final or whoever it may be, but some superstar that's made the difference. And even the first leg against Liverpool, it was kind of the Vinicius show and how he'd made the difference. But in the second leg, it was completely different. It was a team effort. And I think they'll need that to get through against Chelsea. I think they need to be defensively secure, which they don't have too many troubles doing. But without Sergio Ramos, it's very much a team effort. And I think, yeah, like like you say, against Cadiz, it was, again, that kind of team effort with Karim Benzema leading the way. At the weekend, again, a team effort to be very defensively reliable they just lack that kind of cutting edge and I think that's where the game will come down to it is which team has the striker who turns up if it's Karim Benzema which I would bet on it being Karim Benzema not Timo Werner then Real Madrid will probably be the team to go through certainly a finely poised one but John like Liverpool kind of a weird week for them Uh, definitely a bit of a crisis off the pitch uh, in terms of you know, maybe not war, but certainly dispute between the ownership and the squad, uh, including the coach and that. Um, I guess you kind of saw the best and the worst Liverpool because you had the owners kind of really kind of violating the, the history and the culture of the club in the city of Liverpool, of which Everton are also a part. Um, but then you had Jordan Henderson kind of leading by example in refuting that and kind of being uh, almost indomitable in many ways alongside his squad members. Um, they drew one all with Leeds and Newcastle this week. Um, what do you make of it, 
in the last seven days from a Liverpool perspective? I think the fact that they've dropped two points or they dropped points in two of these games is kind of karmic retribution for their owners trying to once again try to be the smartest fella in the room and you know end up with egg in their face. Um, generally, I think they've been very good owners for Liverpool, but there's been several instances where they've tried to take shortcuts through things and it's come back to to haunt them. And uh, this is probably one of the most ruinous ones in terms of their reputation. For the games themselves, I think that the Leeds the Leeds game was probably a fair result. Liverpool were very good in the first half, but in the second half they looked completely and utterly jaded, which you know is probably just the end result of a season where they've had so many injuries and they've played so many games with a lot of the same core personnel because everyone else has been injured. As for the Newcastle game, like the absolute number of missed chances was appalling. I read today that uh, collectively Sadio Mane and Roberto Firmino have underscored their XG by a number of, of goals that uh, is 12. So, you know, hypothetically, had they had been even even somewhat decent in front of goal, Liverpool could be in a much rosier place with Champions League qualification in the context of Champions League qualification. So it kind of feels like karma that there's a good chance now that they'll miss out on a on that top four and won't be in the Champions League next season. Uh, they should have certainly comfortably have won this game. But uh, it, on the other side of the coin, it's probably Newcastle are going to be safe now. So uh, fair play to them. I don't think they deserve to draw. But in Alan St. Maximan, they have one of the most entertaining players in the Premier League. And he was sublime in, in the game. And he was a really effective outball. And he helped uh, he helped side through Liverpool on several occasions. So... You know they're they're going to stay up, but I think it's probably the week that Liverpool's owners deserved in a lot of ways. And what you said about Henderson is true. He's a fantastic leader of men. He really was the driving force and a catalyst behind organising the Premier League captains to pay to pay their respects to the NHS during the first part of the lockdown. And he's been very vocal on a lot of social issues as well. So he's a, an absolutely fantastic leader of men. And I think Liverpool miss him in a way that's very hard to explain because it's an intangible. But you saw when the Newcastle equaliser went in, all the Liverpool players collectively slumped to the floor and looked so disjointed and maybe so devoid of leadership. So the absence of him and Van Dijk has been really keenly felt this season, I think. Absolutely. Would you say that he is maybe the embodiment of this Liverpool team? So when you know uh, the process shifts a bit and new blood comes in, maybe Klopp moves on, new players come in, this kind of team moves on. Is he the man who kind of, you know, is the living embodiment of it, do you think, in terms of his personality, in terms of the way he operates, in terms of the way he kind of defied the odds to make it to the level he got? Or what do you think? Yeah, I think he's actually a good epitome of the team themselves in that he mightn't be the most technically gifted player, but he's extremely hardworking, very tactically intelligent. And, you know, at the end of the day, he's efficient. I wouldn't say Liverpool were have always been the most uh, maybe beautiful team in the world to watch. But over the course of the last three years, they've been entirely successful. So I think in that regard, he's probably a good epitome of the team. And yeah, when Klopp moves on, which will be in 2024, unless he decides to stay, Henderson will have been through so many different eras and iterations of Liverpool managers. He's been through Rodgers and Dog Leash and Klopp and on to the next man. So he'll be really the big connecting point between two disparate parts of Liverpool's uh, of Liverpool's timeline in terms of their past and their future. And I think he's such an impressive individual that you'd look to keep him on in some capacity at the club after he finishes playing, like the way that Bayern Munich 
and Ajax would usually like try to incorporate ex players into their club structure in some way, shape, or form. He's a very impressive individual, in my opinion, and he would be an asset to the club in whatever capacity they could find a place for him. Absolutely, uh, Jasmine. Quite a chaotic weekend in German football. Just to run through the kind of main points: uh, Leipzig lost to Köln and then beat Stuttgart. Bayern Munich beat Bayer Leverkusen, then lost to Mainz. Eintracht Frankfurt beat Augsburg and then lost to Bayer Leverkusen. Uh, Bruce Dortmund won both of their games, kind of booking the form guide. Uh, there was also some off-the-pitch stuff going on too in terms of the managerial merry Um I thought that German football was sober, but um, this season has, has, has proven otherwise. Uh, how, how can you kind of sum up this past week in German football? I mean, I just wanted, when the Super League news broke out, that's like a day after we had... Flick announced he wanted to leave by Munich after the after they won against uh, Lever, Leverkusen, and that kicked off a whole complete uh, storm, basically. Um, so I think the idea is that Hansi Flick, who hasn't been getting along with Hassan Salihamidzic at the kind of director of Bayern Munich. Um, over transfers and they just don't get along and this has been brewing for quite a while um, I think with the announcement of the DFB um, German national team vacancy being up in the summer after the Euros it kind of pushed Hansi Flick to kind of voice his discontent about being at Bayern Munich and it just completely blew over to him saying oh, I want to leave <laughs> so that's kicked off um, a whole more of a merry-go-round. We've already had Bayer Leverkusen coach gone. Lucien Favre already gone from Dortmund, and they brought in Gladbach's Marco Rose, which is going to take place in the summer. Eintracht Frankfurt, Adi Hutter says he's leaving to be the new Gladbach coach. So we've got um, Eintracht Frankfurt vacancy, a Wolfsburg vacancy, and the... This is only at the top of the table. We could go through the lower table ones as well because Cone will need a new manager. Hertha Berlin will probably need a new manager. Um, Augsburg sacked their coach today. They've got a new manager, so we don't have to worry about that for the moment. But um, because my Munich is looking to, in, in some places they were reporting that this deal is done, they're going to take RB Leipzig's coach, Julian Nagelsmann, who's 33 years old. Um, very talented. If we're talking about Tuchel tactics, kind of world-class management, this 33-year-old from Leipzig has been absolutely amazing for them. So Bayern Munich are apparently stunting up from anywhere from 20 million euros to 30 million euros to land him, which also means the Leipzig job will be also up in, be up in the summer as well. So yeah, um, marrying around is probably an understatement but it kind of shows the kind of um, way Bayern Munich want to go. They've come in pretty early to get Julian Nagelsmann, who had been rumoured um, for England jobs with uh, Tottenham. Some whisperings about Man United. Uh, everyone said Tottenham was too small for him, for a manager of that stature, especially if Tottenham don't get into the Champions League, which they don't look like they will. And um, he doesn't have a release clause, so that's why the money is so high for him. He is touted to be the next best coach, basically. And we've not seen numbers um, 
of this since Andre Villas-Boas, uh, Chelsea trying to buy him out um, from Porto for 15 million. Weirdly, Andre Villas-Boas was also the same age, 33. So, yeah, it's it's a lot of an excitement. This, when, once Nagelsmann moves to Bayern Munich and it looks almost like it will be done sooner rather than later, that will kick off a few more people coming in and there's a host of coaches out of a job that we could just see the same coaches at different clubs next year. Absolutely. I guess on the pitch, like Dortmund are an interesting one because of the uh, Jadon Sancho and to even a greater degree uh, Erling Haaland situation in terms of what their summer activity will be. I mean, they picked up two good 2-0 victories and they're quite close to top four places now. Do you think that they could do it? Could they pull off a top four finish? Uh, yeah, I think if you asked me two weeks ago, I probably would have said no. Um, but now, yeah, they're in for the running. They're only two points behind Wolfsburg, who's lost, who has lost uh, three games out of their last five, winning two. Eintracht Frankfurt, similar, last five, they've won three, lost two, which makes them Dortmund only one, two points behind these places. So it's entirely possible um, but Dortmund do have, a, I guess, a harder run-in. They've got RB Leipzig after the DFB Pokal week next week. So Bundesliga basically has a week off next week. Um, but yeah, they have uh, RB Leipzig. And also, the they also have Mainz, because Mainz is, who've just beat by Munich, the informed team now. They've picked up something crazy and they actually have to play all the other contenders of the top four. So Martins, who were in relegation, now have the massive say of who actually claims these top four spots. But as you said, I think San- uh, Sancho's gone either way. Um, Haaland, I think not only if they Dortmund get Champions League, he's in a better position to stay, but also with what has happened with the Super League in the rumoured clubs he was going to go to, if they don't, um, if they get kicked out of the Champions League because they are pushing on with the Super League, then I think we can see Holland stay. Interesting. Where, where do you think Sancho, Sancho will go? Uh, I'm, I wonder if Manchester United will now try and pick him up because I think... He is so talented and it just seems he's had enough of Germany right now. So I think England, if um, especially United, want to stump up the cash this time around. Would you like Sancho, Jonathan? Yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't say no. I mean, he's only one of the best players, young players in world football. So, uh, yeah, and I'd, I'm... It's gone a bit quiet on that front, really, from from Manchester United's point of view. So I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Maybe there's something going on behind the scenes. It would be interesting to watch. And also the the transfer fee, I think it's going to be a really, really interesting summer, uh, to be honest. I think there's, you know, the, the the lack of funds around the top European clubs and then the necessity to either get players off their books or, or sign new players. I think it makes it a really, I think it's going to be fascinating. So I think it's going to be really, really um, sort of, I'm going to be really curious to see what happens because there's certain teams that need a complete rebuild, for example, that, that don't have the funds. And then there's teams that maybe want to get rid of some players. There's teams that want to sign some of these players like Sancho, Mbappe, Haaland. So I think we're going to see clubs having to be really, really creative uh, in their recruitment. We're going to see maybe, I think, swap deals. I think there'll be quite a lot of swap deals. We're going to potentially see players deciding to run down their contract 
Uh, if you look at, for example, Paul Pogba, his contract goes to 2022. Neymar's contract, sorry, Mbappe's contracts to 2022. So ne- Neymar too. No, not Neymar. Sorry. Oh, is it? The both of them are 2022. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, but I think I think Neymar's going to um, stay at PSG. I think that's pretty much done. Just needs to be announced. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, Mbappe is, is is out of contract. So you know, there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of politics, I think, involved in a lot of these transfer windows coming up this season as well with the Super League. You know, teams maybe not wanting to do business with each other. I mean, who's going to want to do business with Real Madrid, if that makes sense? You know, there, there can be certain clubs maybe feeling a little bit bitter towards others. So I think, yeah, it's going to be very, very interesting. I don't know where Sancho fits into all that, but um, as Jasmine says, maybe, maybe he's um, maybe he is looking to come home sort of thing. So we'll, we'll see. Um, I don't think it's certain that United will, will get him. I think Chelsea may may even be looking at him still. But yeah, I'm not. I really am not sure. Liverpool may even may even sort of, you know, pull one out of the, a rabbit out of the hat as they, they tend to do in the transfer market um, when people least expect it. So yeah, we'll see. Uh, speaking of France, we spoke PSG earlier. Um, there's some very interesting games across France this weekend, Jonathan. Um, Marseille beating Rome, uh, Monaco beating Anger, uh, Len beating Nîmes, uh, Lyon losing two three to Lille, cracking game that one. Um, what do you make of the league on title race, and how do you see it going towards the end of the season? Yes, yeah, it's, it's amazing because it's been, you know, it's up there with what we've been one of the most exciting title races around Europe. I think to be honest, so it's quite. I think it's quite sad in a way because I don't think league on gets the, the credit it, it sort of deserves at times um, in terms of the the league and the quality of the league, and. I think with a TV deal, I mean, I was speaking to someone who, who's based, I think, in Canada, and they, they were sort of saying that they can't they can't watch the game. Um, so even in French-speaking parts of, of Canada, you know, I think the league is really. I was on another uh, show and I was t- t- talking about how bad poorly the league is, is marketed and, and the collapse of the TV deal with MediaPro, and um, I find it quite sad to be honest. The way the way the league is um, is not really making the best of, of, of what it has. That's my, my personal feeling. I mean, this title race is is unbelievable, to be honest. You've got you've got four teams potentially still with a chance of winning it. You've got four games to go and, and there's six points between between the four teams. Um Lille beat Leon, one of the other contenders, three two away this this uh, weekend to to go top. Uh, they're one point above PSG. Uh, and then you've got Monaco in third, so you've got 71, 72, 73 points. Um, and then uh, Leon now sort of probably out of the title race now they're in, on 67 so six points four games to go maybe that might be a little bit of a bridge too far for them having lost but this game was really end-to-end stuff it was an incredible match um, you know Leo coming from behind to to, to score and, and win a, with a late a late goal from Burak Yilmaz uh, so yeah I, I found you know they were 2-0 down of course and um, turned it round so I found it a really Good season, I think, and obviously, don't forget, Lille beat PSG away only uh, about three weeks ago. So, you know, they've really, they're really sort of hanging in there, and 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 you know, still top of the table. They've got four pretty relatively tough games to go. They've got a big derby against their their um their big rivals Lens away in May, and they've, then they've got Nice at home, Saint Etienne, and Angers away. So, you know, win all those games, and they're champions. And you know, they've not won a title since the days of Eden Hazard, when he kind of almost not single-handedly, but he was instrumental in them in them winning that title. And yeah, it's just been, a, you know, Monaco have got a really exciting young team as well. You know, they're not out of it yet. Uh, PSG, of course, will have a lot to say because it's PSG. They've got a couple of tough games, Ren away being one of them. Um, so yeah, and obviously Leon, it's a real shame for them. Probably the Memphis Depay's last season. Hossam Mouar as well, potentially maybe off in the summer. So there's so much talent in these, in these sort of four squads in particular. Um, 
sort of all going toe to toe, but with no fans, TV rights still collapsing. It's just a bit of a shame that it's not got maybe the, um, you know, the, the central focus that it, I, I feel it kind of deserves to a certain extent. And and one final point, Alan, just on that, um, Lille especially, if they, you know, Lille are in such a massive financial crisis that if they don't, you know, th- this could be the end of Lille basically in terms of their their, their short to medium term future. They're, 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 they're massive uh, debts and they probably will have to sell like, you know, a lot of players this summer. So it's kind of like it'd be nice in a way for them to win this title and complete that project, especially for their manager, Christophe Galtier, who I, I think has given an exceptional service over many, many years in, in French football. And I, th- I think he's a really, really good manager. Um, when they got the win uh, against Lyon, he fell to his knees and, you know, they're all dancing and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, there's a real good team spirit he's created. And of course, uh, he was formerly at Saint-Étienne where their major rivals were Lyon. So to knock Lyon out of the title race would probably have felt a bit sweet for him personally. But uh, yeah, this is a really... You know, it's a really entertaining title race and there's a lot of good players, as I say, um, involved in it. Um, Jonathan David, Burak Yilmaz, you know, Lille have got a very, very good young squad. Bubakari Samare, there's a lot of players that are going to be probably in the shop window this summer. So, yeah, it's, uh, I've really enjoyed this title race and, uh, you know, four games to go. Let's see see where it goes. Do you have a word on Bordeaux? They're in a bit of trouble, aren't they? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's again, it's it's financial crisis. Um, so they're kind of their financial backers, King Street. I think they're American owners. They've basically announced that they're not going to fund the club any longer. Uh, they can't afford it, apparently. So um, the, the the club has essentially been passed into the municipality of Bordeaux. Uh, so it's now up to the city itself to maybe try and find a buyer. Um, you know, they, they got battered at the weekend and, you know, they're still not out of relegation trouble. It's a real problem for them. They, you know, they're a historic club. They've won multiple league titles. Um, this is the team that Zidane, Zidane came from, of course, and um, others have, have, have sort of um, represented the club with distinction over the years. They're quite a big club historically. And yeah, they're in, in really big trouble, really. Uh, if they don't find a buyer, then it's it's looking like potential relegation or even double relegation for them. Uh, so they could be back down to the third division. Um, they're not the only ones. You know, the collapse of this TV deal, um, Media Pro essentially backed out and so they can't uh, fulfill the contracts that they had signed. So they've paid, I think, a small compensation figure. Canal Plus picked up the rights uh, at a cut price. Um, and, you know, the, the, the French TV deal, it dwarfs in comparison to to um, the other bigger leagues. You know, uh, for example, it's nowhere near the Premier League. But, you know, um, even when you look at La Liga or, or um, Serie A, you know, France's TV deal is about, I think, I'm not entirely sure exactly, but it's, 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 it's a fraction of those, those clubs, uh, those leagues, sorry. Um, so Saint-Étienne as well, they've announced that they got, they're up for sale, uh, a massive club historically, you know, so I think some American investors, if they're looking to sort of pick up some clubs on the cheap, then, then France is certainly the place to be at this moment in time, because you've got huge sort of, uh, quote unquote legacy clubs really, really, really struggling. And, um, it would be a real shame for some of these clubs to, to, to go bust or, or, you know, to go down because they, you know, they, they're massive clubs. And, and that really ties into the point I was sort of trying to make, Alan, in terms of, the league not really marketing itself that well, I don't think. You know, you've got Rams in there. They've got a massive history fighting Real Madrid for, for European Cups and stuff in the 50s. You know, th- these are some big clubs. And I don't think maybe in this digital age where people's attention spans are, are short and, and everybody's competing with everybody for people's attention, I don't think the league has really marketed itself well enough when when I actually think they, they, they could do a much better job. It's a really, really good league. It's really full of young talent. And I just think some of the clubs, don't, they don't get mess, maybe the... You know, they've got massive fan bases as well. San Etienne, you know, the, some of these fan bases are huge. 
And I just think at times they, they, they just haven't marketed themselves to, to be valuable enough for, for where they are. And that's obviously led to, um, well, it's obviously helped co- contribute to this financial crisis. But um, yeah, it's a sad time for Bordeaux and, and a sad time for French football in general, really. It's, the summer is going to be very, very difficult for a lot of clubs, I think. You mentioned young talents. Uh, Ren beat Dijon 5-1 at the weekends. Playing on the right side of that midfield three was Eduardo Camavinga. Um, he's a very interesting 18-year-old midfielder. Uh, of Angolese and French nationality, pays for French national team. Uh, we spoke about him yesterday, and you sent me a very, very uh, insightful and revealing um, scout report that you did in him last May. Um, he's been mentioned in the Madrid press for months and months. Uh, the plan was always for Madrid to go and sign him and Kylian Mbappe this summer and then go for Erling Haaland in 2022. Obviously, uh, you know, many things have happened since. Uh, that's kind of scuppered that plan in many ways. Haaland's um, ascent has uh, sped up rapidly and also Madrid's situation isn't so good. Um, what are your thoughts on Eduardo Camavinga? His contract is also out in the summer of 2022, uh, along with the other players you mentioned earlier. Um, the consensus seems to be that he's going to move in the summer. Uh, in that scout report, you mentioned that you'd like to see him stay at um, Ren for another season at least, um, much like we were talking about Neymar and the Brazilians earlier to kind of really kind of stamp their authority on a smaller club. Um, what do you make of what's going to happen to him? Who do you think he's going to go to and how good do you think he's going to be? Yeah, firstly, thanks for the, the plug. Uh, that's nice, very nice of you. Um, and uh, he's, a, he's a top talent, Kamavinga. He's, I think, one of the most exciting players I've seen um, in youth football for many, many years. I would say I don't think he's had a fantastic season. I think this is probably one of his weaker seasons compared to the maybe the two before that when he was sort of 16 and 17. So it says a lot really when um, he's pretty pretty much dominating French football at 17. This season he's had a, a slight dip. Ren in general have, have had a bit of a slight dip this season. Obviously they qualified for the, the Champions League last year. This year they're seventh and, and probably that's about their level. Um, their manager left as well. So it's been a bit of a, it's not been a great season for, for Ren. They've lost 10 games out of 34. And, and Camavinga's kind of, he has had a dip. I think partly part of the reason for that is I think burnout. I think he, he played a lot of football. Um, of course, you know the season was, was curtailed, but um, I think that he, he he played a lot of football and then picked up a bit of an injury as well. And, and I, I think just maybe you really need to be careful how you manage these players at that such a young age, you know, because um, there's all sorts of factors you have to consider. They're still growing into their bodies and that kind of thing. And, and you, you know, there's a lot of factors that you know, we maybe don't talk about when we when we look at these young players. Um, I think it's really interesting. I've been, I don't know if any of you guys um, read The Athletic at all or subscribe to it or whatever, but um, one maybe curiosity that I've noticed this season is that um, Camavinga signed with uh, Jonathan Barnett's agency. So he left his agent, I don't know who it was in France maybe, and signed with Jonathan Barnett and who, who obviously represents Gareth Bale and, uh, one, and many others. And of course, um, you know, they're, they're self, self-styled biggest agency in the world. And so what we've seen is, there's been a lot of leaks about Camavinga's situation leaking to, in particular, the Athletic. I've noticed, uh, who had an interview with Barnett as well on their on their on their website. So, I wonder if there's a little bit of um, games going on there to try and put him in the shop window. I think they did a piece on him recently, and in my in my in my you know reading between the lines there, I think that's kind of trying to push him to the English market. Um, so, so watch that space. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have noticed that at all, but. Um, I think he will probably leave, as you've, you've rightly mentioned. He's got a contract till 2022. I think there'll be a feeling that they want to cash in. But this is what I mean about the, the window coming this this uh, summer. Who who can afford him? I think a year ago, you'd have been looking at 100 million for him. Now, I, I can't see Real Madrid paying 100 million for for an 18-year-old who won't 
automatically be a first choice player. Maybe you know he he's still got a lot of room for development. Um, an example of this, they're saying, they're saying fourth year today. I think are they? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, an example of this is at the under twenty one Euros recently. Camavinga wasn't that great actually for France in the under twenty one Euros. Uh, he lost his place in the side for for one of the games, and you know you'd expect him to dominate it, but he, he I think he is just that just so much football, and then the injury. I think it's just affected him a little bit. And, and then obviously speculation and, and Ren's dip in form. So all these factors have probably reduced his price slightly. Um, but, you, but you just wonder where where would he go? Who's going to have the money to, to be able to afford him? A year ago, I would have said it would probably be nailed on to either Real Madrid or maybe PSG. Um, now I'm, I'm really not so sure. I think that he could maybe end up in England. He could could maybe go to Real Madrid, but I think they may have other priorities with Mbappe Haaland. So it's a difficult one. I, my gut feeling says potentially maybe end up at PSG the way things are going. But um, I, I've got a gut feeling just reading between the lines of what I've seen in the athletic and stuff. I, I feel like he's being pushed to England. So maybe a team in England may want to pick up a, a sort of a potentially very, very big talent uh, with a lot of years left in his career. You know, So we'll see. But um, I, th- I think at this moment in time, if I was to predict today, I, I might say PSG for, for some reason. That's just my gut feeling. One to watch for sure. Um, Sam in Spain very very intense weekend and week of uh, action in the title race we mentioned Barcelona beating Villarreal 2-1 uh, yesterday Greasy scoring a superb first goal and capitalising on a Juan Foyth error for the second uh, they also beat Getafe 5-2 on Thursday evening at the ungodly hour of 10 o'clock again Spain don't want us to sleep it seems uh, Lionel Messi was in superb form uh, doing a 1-2 with the post before scoring uh, one of his goals remarkably uh, other games of interest in a four-horse title race. Sevilla went and beat Levante 1-0 at Levante and then followed up with a 2-1 defeat at Granada uh, yesterday evening. Two very ballsy wins. Really puts them right in the mixed for title race. Uh, I know a club close to your heart, Atletico Madrid, didn't have so great a week. Um, personally, I thought that after the Eibar uh, game, they were kind of, you know, really back in the good form, back in the uh, on a good ratchet, but... It's not been the case. They beat Huesca 2-0, of course, midweek, but then lost Athletic Club last night 2-1 um, in the Basque country. Really not a good week for Atletico. Um, what's your thoughts on the title race, Sam, and on this week's action in general? I mean, a lot of criticism being leveled at Diego Simeone today. Um, in El Partidazo, as we were discussing earlier, they were kind of talking about how it's unjust because if Messi is Barca, if Florentino is Madrid, Cholo is Atletico. But, like, what do you think is the line? I mean, because nobody is completely devoid of being able to be criticised. Like, has Simeone fucked this up? Like, what's what's your read in this whole kind of title race? No. Uh, I think the criticism of Simeone is, is really over the top. I can see why it's there, because they have faded off their form in 2021 is a shadow of their form in 2020. But I think you just have to look at how they were playing. I mean, even if you just look at the XG and the expected points and the actual points and things around Christmas time, around January, early February, Atletico were way ahead of where they should have been according to XG and and expected points. They were way ahead of it. And now they're more or less kind of where you'd expect them to be in terms of their most recent games. And I think that's kind of just showing how much they were overperforming and exceeding all expectations up until around that time, January, early February, when that was when Atletico had a bit of an injury crisis, when there was a COVID outbreak in the team and 
and you can kind of see why things have faded off for them. They haven't been able to keep up their form quite to the same extent. I mean, Marco Llorente saw that, I mean, he's played pretty much every minute all season almost, and against Athletic, he recorded his highest speed yet this season, and it came in the 91st minute of the match. So, I mean, having engines like that in the team is what's kept Atletico going this long. But any other team, you think they'd fade away. And, and at the same time, I mean, you look at Barcelona, I think they've got 46 points from a possible 51 in 2020. 21, 21, sorry. So, I mean, that's incredible form from Barcelona. That The start of the season was nowhere to be seen. Real Madrid are kind of plugging along as well. They're, they're not dropping points. They're not being thrilling. They're not being spectacular. But they're picking up the wins. They're picking up the odd draw to drop points. But they're still in the race. And, and Sevilla as well have had a magnificent 2021. I think we've kind of seen the, the polar opposites that the first half of the season, it was all about Atletico Madrid. They were leaders by some distance. I think it was seven points that they were clear and kind of outperforming what you'd expect them to do and the rest were way below where they should be. And now since that time, January, around halfway through the season, they've switched roles completely and Barcelona have stepped up big time. Sevilla have stepped up, Real Madrid more or less around the same kind of area. But I think there's so much to play for and and the thing to watch out for really is in a couple of weeks, the, the 8th and the 9th of, of May, where they all play each other in the top four. It's Barcelona, Atletico and Real Madrid, Sevilla. And those results in those two games are going to define the whole season. I mean, Atletico beat Barcelona in the, the reverse fixture, but they don't have a great record at Camp Nou. They don't have a great record. Simeone doesn't have a great record against Barcelona in La Liga. So there's just so much depending on that 90 minutes because at the moment you'd be hard-pushed to say that any of the top four would drop points against anybody else other than themselves. So a whole lot to play for. And what to make of Sevilla? Do you think that they have what it takes to sustain this? I mean, like the way they're playing is very much, like I said, kind of very ballsy and very much getting things over the line um, in kind of almost inopportune circumstances, Um, as opposed to maybe Barca, who are kind of really, like, you know, especially inspired by Messi, kind of really playing with a bit of style at the moment. Um, do you think that they can sustain this or do you think that it all rests on that game at Valdebebas on the 9th of May? I think they can sustain it. I just don't think it's enough. I mean, they are only a couple of points behind, but like I was just saying, I can't see any of these teams dropping points other than to each other. And so with that in mind, I mean, maybe Sevilla could go up to third, maybe even second, but I can't see them winning the league. But they are just playing, like you say, with that attitude of, we're just going to go out, play our game, be confident, do what we do best. And then if that's enough to be in with a shout at the title, then fantastic. And that's very much kind of Julian Lopetegui's whole approach. is very intense and he won't let them take their foot off the gas at any point. And so many other coaches would have been very happy to say, look, we're coasting for fourth. Why not just rest up? Let's take it easy. It's been a long season. Can't forget as well that last summer, I think they had what a three-week pre-season break almost between the Europa League ending and and getting back into action. So what they're doing now, and they're finding this form so late this season, with very few transfers coming in in, in the summer. I don't think there were any kind of major transfers. Papa Gomez came in in January. But the squad are kind of... So not a big squad. Uh, quite a few of their key players are a bit older, even Rakitic. And they're just playing so well with such confidence and, and balls, like you say. I mean... And you know that they will go to Valdebebas and they will give Real Madrid a real fight. And and that will be where, where it will be interesting to see Real Madrid after the Champions League ties, if they're a bit shaky, 
how their confidence is going to be if those Champions League ties haven't gone well. And if they have gone well, then how much energy they're going to have in their legs to play Sevilla? Or are they going to be focused on the Champions League? So, I mean, just so much up in the air that I don't think we can say, never say never about any of these four teams. Sevilla probably have it hardest, but they're probably the one team that you wouldn't rule out springing a real surprise in the next few weeks. They're also the one team with no pressure on them. Um, so, yeah, definitely will be interesting to see how that one ends. But just to wrap things up, guys, I'll ask you all for your moment of the week. Um, I've already mentioned mine, Ben Godfrey, gloriously celebrating uh, in, after the Arsenal game and riding up through the Arsenal players. Uh, John, what was your moment of the week? Oh, it's got to be St. Johnson's Xander Clark, the goalkeeper, nearly scoring for St. Johnson against Rangers in the in the Scottish Cup semi-final. He, uh, he met a corner right plumb in the middle of the six-yard box and it was probably going to go over the line, but his teammate Chris Kane made sure it did and robbed him of a goal. <laughs> what, what a moment it was. Like, who doesn't love to see goalkeepers scoring? Like, you often see them coming up to the box and the ball doesn't go anywhere near them. And the context is that this is a Rangers defence that has basically been impregnable in domestic football. And they just watched him in the middle of the six-yard box alone with his with his luminous green bright jersey, head the ball down. And uh, they eventually then went on to win in penalties and they qualified for uh, for the Scottish Cup final, or the, the semi-final rather, which is a huge achievement for, for a club of that standard, stature compared to Rangers. So... Uh, so fair play to him. It's one of those moments where I really lamented the fact that there was no crowd in the stadium because can you imagine the limbs in the away end if that had happened? So, uh, yeah, fair play to uh, to Xander Clark. Absolutely. Uh, Jasmine, how about you? Um, I know it was last week, but I think it was... I can't remember. It, Super League has mushed my brain, so I don't know when things happen, but I'm going to go for a slightly older one and say when... <laughs> Matt Ryan, Arsenal goalkeeper, came up for a corner in the last minute and actually won a header because that's the best thing that's happened to Arsenal fans in like the last two weeks. <laughs> uh, Jonathan, how about you? Don't tell me it's a goalkeeper coming up for a corner, please. No, it isn't. I've got to say my, my moment of the week was, I think, Wembley, really, just seeing fans back in the stadium. Uh, it was kind of weird. I, I, I don't support either team, but I, I felt quite... I won't go as far as to say emotional, but I felt kind of like it was quite a big moment, really. It felt, it felt, uh, I felt I had a really warm feeling when I watched the that cup final. Um, I know it was only a small amount of fans, I think it was 8,000. Wasn't a massive fan of the fact that they put like the NHS seats like the, at the worst position possible. Like, they basically gave the NHS the worst seats. I think they were like the top deck, weren't they? Um, could have given them a box seat, guys. But uh, yeah, I thought it was really, really nice and really warm feeling just to see fans back. Hopefully, you know, there's no further safety issues. Um, it was nice to see crowds cheering and, you know, like, I think probably my favourite moment was like when the ball goes out for a corner, you know, and you know, like when fans sort of start cheering a corner, like I, I've, I've missed that, you know, like Sky, uh, Sky sort of fake crowd noise, they don't capture that one. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, I just felt really nice um, sort of seeing fans back at stadiums and I hope, hope that this can be the start of uh, some greater sensible decision-making and we can potentially, hopefully, start seeing that more regularly in the, in the coming weeks and months to come and maybe get a full season completed uh, with fans. Definitely. I think you can't beat the reactions, you know, the in-game reactions, different small kind of insignificant moments, like the bit of jeering of something goes wrong, or as you mentioned, the kind of anticipation of a corner kick, even though statistically, I think like, you know, a ridiculously small number of 
corner kicks are actually successful, but that doesn't stop the excitement, right? Yeah, uh, keep your keep your stats on that one. I think uh, you got to <laughs> another corner kick. You know, what I mean, the, the people punching the air and stuff when a corner is given. But no, no. Listen, Jonathan, I'm isn't it like that? So, I really Jonathan, like. I'm. I'm an Everton fan. Like we celebrate corners like nobody else. Like <laughs> trust me. <laughs> and throw-ins. Uh, and throw-ins, yeah, as famously throw-ins as well. <laughs> In fairness, Luca Dean is a very good throw on him, but uh, anyway, that's off point. Uh, Sam, what's your moment of the week? Mine is from Sevilla, Granada, where something I'd never seen before, a football game. Referee Ricardo de Burgos, uh I think I pronounced that right. Um, blew the whistle with one minute still left in injury time and then all the players swapping shirts going down the tunnel Granada players not happy they scored one goal just a few minutes before in the 89th minute and they were trying to get an equaliser um, then VAR warned the referee that he'd blown up a minute early and so proceeded to get all of the players back out onto the pitch and you had players kind of putting their shin pads back on, tying up their laces, putting their socks on on the side of the pitch, seeing players come out of the dressing room and not very happy about it. Jules Gondé tweeted afterwards, if you want, we can replay the whole match. And it was just bizarre watching it and all for 60 seconds of football, where it was basically one long ball up to the one end and then back again. And the final whistle was blown for a second time. Really weird scenes that nobody could quite explain. The sight of Marcus Acuna sitting down on the touchline, putting on his shin pads and shaking his head angrily was uh, hilarious. He was being uh, robbed of his post-match mate, it seemed. But, uh, but anyway, guys, thanks so much for joining me. A really, really interesting chat. Um, definitely got me looking forward to the week of football to come. Uh, plug your socials, guys. John, where, where can we find you? You can find me at Twitter at NotoriousJOS. I went and wrote a, quite a lot of pieces for Anfield Index today, so they should come out in the next couple of days. Perfect. Jasmine? You can find me on Twitter, underscore Jasmine Barber. I currently have a pinned tweet on my article of for Deutsche Welle, DW, um, so on how Bayern won with 10 men, which was kind of pivotal of them kind of winning the title. They haven't yet, but they will. Uh, Jonathan, how about you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at JFFootball, F-U-T-B-O-L. Uh, so yeah, thanks a lot, guys. It's been nice spending time with you, and uh, cheers, Alan, for hosting. No worries. Thank you. And Sam? You can find me on Twitter at Sam Leverage and then also keep an eye out this week over at La Liga Lowdown. We've got a podcast on Hetafe, the team that everyone loves to hate that's coming out. Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, and you can get me at Azul Feely on Twitter. And thanks for, for joining me, guys. Really appreciate it. And thank you to the listener for listening. Um, have a good week. Enjoy the football and we'll see you soon.